May 9th, 1941 was a pivotal moment in the Second World War because prior to that, the Germans had come up and had begun to use what was called the Enigma machine. And you may have heard that before. It looked kind of like a typewriter. And what they would do is they would use that to encode their secret messages. And so then the Allied forces, the, the British and so forth, uh, were not able to uh, decrypt those things. And so they, they um, passed that information along, and it was kind of uh, this unknown. But on May 9th, 1941, that all changed because a German U-boat, U-110, was hit by a depth charge. And the, uh, consequently, the, the crew had to abandon ship, and the British boarded U-110. And when they got down in there, they found uh, papers and codes, and they found a functioning, and it looked like it had, had been used uh, just recently, an Enigma machine. Now, they had had, they'd already gotten their hands on an Enigma machine, but they didn't have all the internal work, uh, the internal parts that were working, and so uh, they needed this, this piece. And once they had that, it enabled them to decrypt these secret messages. And because of that, they could, they could find out, they could figure out, they could know the tactics of the enemy. Today's text is going to kind of be like getting the Enigma machine for the devil. Okay, we're going to get tactics of the enemy. Our passage is going to be in Luke chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 1. And you remember Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people, but against principalities and powers and so on and so forth. And he says that we need to be careful, we need to beware of the wiles of the devil. And so the devil does have schemes, he has stratagems, he has tactics that we need to be aware of. And our text today is going to, be, it's going to give us some light about what some of those tactics are. Now just to kind of orient you again to where we are, we're going through the Gospel of Luke. We started in Luke 1.1 and we've made it to Luke chapter 4. And uh, you remember, I mentioned this a few weeks back, but we are recording our services digitally um, with the audio and video now. So if you miss a week or something like that, you can go back and get caught up. But last week, what we looked at was the baptism of Jesus. And you remember that Luke didn't focus on the baptism itself. He focused rather, it was just kind of a larger part, or it was a part of a larger picture, which was when Jesus was anointed as Messiah uh, by the Holy Spirit. And you remember all three persons of the Trinity were there. They were present. They were interacting. The, uh, the sun was in the water. The, the Spirit came down as a dove. The, the Father spoke from heaven. All three members of the Trinity were present in this act. And so right after this, Jesus comes up out of the water and immediately goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil. And so that's what we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 4. If you have your Bible and you have it uh, open to uh, Luke chapter 4, I'd ask you to stand with me in honor of God's Word if you're able. We'll pick up in verse 1 and read down to verse 13. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when, he had, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it, will, it shall be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, 
If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, as we start to look at our text, I just kind of want to take a, a big picture look, and I want to make a few observations, a few truths that we can, uh, that we can grab hold of uh, before we actually get into the individual strategies, the individual tactics that the devil uses. And the first is that being filled with the Spirit does not guarantee a temptation-free life. Being filled with the Spirit does not guarantee that we're going to live a life free of temptation. And while a lot of people seem to think, and a lot of Christians think this, is that if I'll, I'll, if I'll just be close to God, if I'll be filled with the Spirit, if I'll just be doing the things that God wants me to do, that all these things that, that, uh, that I'm facing right now, all these difficulties, all these challenges, all these temptations, they're all going to go away. If I just, you know, if I just walk close to God... The devil's going to be off my back. He's not going to be harassing me, not going to be bothering me. I'm going to live a temptation-free life. They think that, that if a person is filled with the Spirit, his leading is going to always be beside the still waters. But listen, that's not the way that, that things work. That's not the way that life is. Why? Because, because the devil wants to fight against God's work in our lives. He hates God. He hates God's people, and he will fight against God's work in our lives. And so what he'll do is he'll, he'll try to distract us. He'll try, to tempt, he'll try to tempt us. He'll try to get us uh, focused on other things to put other people and priorities in God's place. He'll try to sideline us. He'll try to discourage us. Why? Because he hates God. He hates us. He hates us as God's people. And listen, the closer we get to God, the more of a target we become. And so don't think that, that if you're closer to God that you're going to have fewer troubles with the devil. You're going to have more troubles with the devil. Because you, you're just putting a bigger target on your back when you do that. And so listen, nobody was more filled with the Spirit than Jesus, and it didn't keep him from being tempted by the devil. The second thing I want you to see just as we look at this in, in just kind of broad categories is pretty obvious, and that is that temptation and sin are not the same thing. Being tempted and sinning are not the same thing. Again, James tells us in James chapter 1, that, that temptation is the first step on, on that path of sin, but temptation is not sin. He says that, that we're tempted when we're drawn away by our lusts. And when that conceives, it, 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 it brings forth sin. But listen, temptation and sin are not the same thing. It's the first, it's the first step on the path to sin. It's the, the, the first uh, crossroads that you get to, so to speak. But Jesus was tempted as we are, and yet without sin. So temptation and sin are not the same thing. And so sometimes we feel guilty when we're tempted, but temptation is not sin. The last thing I want you to see before we get into the text itself is that temptation comes from both without and within. Temptation comes both from without and from within. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a dictionary definition of temptation. The closest thing it does is, is it, comes, it comes pretty close in James chapter 1 when it says that, that, uh, that, that this solicitation to do evil, that's what we usually think of with temptation, that this solicitation to do evil comes from the devil and it comes from without. And so James says, that, um, James says in James chapter 1 that, that this temptation were drawn away by our lusts. And so, so we tend to think of Temptation is only being a solicitation to evil, but, solic- but, 
Temptation also means to put someone or something to the test. And so a lot of times we read in the Bible that, that uh, people tempted Jesus. They put him to the test. You remember in the Old Testament, the, 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 the Israelites out in the wilderness, they put God to the test a lot. Um, you remember the Bible says that God tempted Abraham in offering up Isaac. He wasn't trying to get him to sin. He was putting him to the test. Oftentimes the scribes and Pharisees in interacting with Jesus, the Bible will say that they tempted him. They were trying to get him to, to, to trip up. They were putting him to the test. So how, how all this kind of fits together is we all have pressures that come from without. We all have these temptations. We all have this putting to the test from without. We all have these promises of gratification and allurement that come from without. Our problem is we have a fallen nature that leaps at the idea. And we've all experienced that, haven't we? I mean, there, there'll just be the tiniest little thing, and it'll just inflame this desire to do whatever it is. And so the problem is we have all these, all these pressures that come from without, and we have an enemy in the gates, so to speak, that just wants to lower the drawbridge for the enemy. And that, that's the picture that, that uh, John MacArthur uses in one of his books. It, it's, we, we have an enemy inside the gates, and so we have this fallen human nature that leaps at the idea, and sometimes it comes up with an idea, a way to sin. And so what happens is Jesus' temptation was slightly different from ours in the sense that he still had those promises of gratification, those, those pressures that came from without, but he didn't have a fallen nature like we do. And so all these appeals that, that Satan was trying to make to, to these different aspects of his nature, they were falling on deaf ears, so to speak, because he had a nature that was pure and innocent and holy. See, our nature leaps at the idea to sin, uh, leaps at an opportunity to sin, but his nature was repelled by the idea of sin. And so, so his temptation, unlike ours, his was only from without. Ours is both from without and from within because we have that fallen nature. But anyway, I said that we're going to uh, look at the tactics of the devil. So to kind of lay the groundwork and give us a structure to look at this, I'm going to bring in a passage from the book of First John. First John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And here's, here's the key verse. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now what that means is, everything the world has to offer you, everything that the devil can offer you, come, it's, it's not from God. And all these things that, that the world can offer you falls into the, one of three categories. Now, sometimes there, there's overlap. But it, it falls into three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So, with that in mind, that using that as a framework, let's look again at the text in Luke chapter 4 and, and the temptation of Christ. The first area of temptation that we see is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. Now, what is lust? Well, it is. We tend to think of it as a, a uh, uh, in in terms of a physical attraction or something like that. But but lust is an inordinate desire for something or someone. It's it's wanting to fulfill whatever whatever appetite it is in an inappropriate way. Now, understand that does not mean the appetite or desire in itself is bad, but the way that we want to fulfill it is the bad thing. And so, look at again at our text. Jesus gets hit with the temptation. Look at verse 3. The devil said to him, 
If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, I just want to hopefully clear something up. When it says, if you're the Son of God, he's not scratching his head trying to figure it out. He, he didn't have any uh, wonderings. He wasn't saying, you know, I think it may be you, but it may be this guy over here. That's not the way it was. He wasn't saying, if you're really the Son of God. He, it's the, that word, if, you know, sometimes we, we use it in the sense of, since this is the case. That's the way it's being used here. Since you're the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. So the temptation here is the lust of the flesh, fulfilling an appetite, maybe a, a legitimate appetite in an illegitimate way. Now, did Jesus have authority over the stones? Yes. Did he have the power to turn those stones into bread? Yes. Is there anything sinful and wrong about eating bread? No. Those of you who hate carbs, nothing wrong with it. Now listen, the problem was the devil was trying to get Jesus to fulfill that appetite, literally a physical appetite, because he'd been 40 days without food. I can't even imagine. I get hangry if I go a few hours without food. 40 days, I can't imagine. 40 days he was hungry. He had every right to eat bread. He had every right to turn the stones into bread if he so desired. But the inappropriateness was he was setting an example for us in depending on God and his provision. And so we don't have the power to turn stones into bread. And so there was an inappropriateness because he would be doing something that we are incapable of doing in that sense. But a bigger reason it was, it was inappropriate is because he was trying to get Jesus to take care of things apart from God. He was trying to get Jesus to take care of his needs, his, his provisions, to fulfill his appetites apart from the Lord. It's like he was saying, you know, you don't need God for this. You, you just go ahead and take care of it all on your own. You, you got this. You're enough. You can do it. I have faith in you. You, you just turn this stone into bread. You don't need to wait for God's provision. Go ahead and just take this shortcut. Take the shortcut. Now again, his role was to suffer and endure the things that we suffer and endure. And he set the example for us to follow. And, and he set the example for us to follow in the sense that he was waiting on God's providence for him. Now what is Jesus' response? Well, if your Bible's like mine, it'll set it apart in, in different texts. In my case, it's all caps. Jesus quoted Scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone. He quoted the book of Deuteronomy. Sometimes we, we read through the Scriptures. We start, maybe we make it through Leviticus. We persevere, get through Numbers, and we hit Deuteronomy. And it's like, oh, I just read this in Exodus. It, it's, it's the telling of the same stuff over again. Deutero second. Anomy, law, the, the second telling of the law. And so we, it, sometimes we read it and we say, this doesn't have anything to do with today. And Jesus shows us it does. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. In that passage, Moses is reminding the people of being in the wilderness. Where's Jesus? In the wilderness. And what did Moses say in, in Deuteronomy 8, 3? He says, you know what? And this is, my, this is the unauthorized Jeff Braddock version. He says, you know what, guys? You're in the wilderness, and you all were grumbling and complaining. You know what God did for you? He provided bread for you in the wilderness. He provided food for you. He took care of you. He provided for your needs. 
And what, what he's saying is when he says that man should not live by bread alone, he gave you literally bread from heaven, manna. And what he's saying is man should not live by bread alone. In other words, life is bigger than just fulfilling our appetites. Life is bigger than just gratifying ourselves, both in, in just the general sense, but also in the specific sense of our, our, our physical needs. Life is bigger than that. And just like the Hebrews in the wilderness, our provision comes from the hand of God. And the manna was there, not because the Israelites made it be there, but because God willed it to be so. And so we see that, that, that we are sustained not by bread apart from God, but by bread because of God. Okay, so the devil's trying to get Jesus to fulfill this, this desire, this appetite for food in this case, apart from God's provision. Lust of the flesh. The second area, the second category that the devil tempts us in is lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes. Now those are those things that tempt us, that seek to draw us away through, you guessed it, the things that we see. Lust of the eyes, the things that we see, the things that we look at. Now there are a couple of very prominent examples of this. So you think, what is, what is lust of the eyes? What, are the, what is that? It's, it's this desire for, for, for glory, for riches, for stuff. You might say it's covetousness. Somebody's house, somebody's car, somebody's ministry, somebody's job. We look at it and we want it for ourselves. We covet. It lusts of the eyes. So, so you think about stories in the Bible. We have in the book of Joshua, Achan. You remember Achan? God had, or Joshua had led the Israelites in defeating uh, Jericho. God had said, don't take anything from that place. And so they went, they marched around Jericho, the walls came tumbling down, Rahab and her family got out. And then they went up to Ai to fight against a much smaller town, and they, they got whooped. And the reason was because of a sin that Achan had committed. And here's, here is his own accounting from Joshua chapter 7, verses 20 and 21. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. Now I want you to listen and see if you hear less of the eyes here. And this is what I did, verse 21. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of, shil- of, of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So do you hear that progression? I saw, I coveted, I took. Same thing with David. Of course, we all know what happened with David and his sin with Bathsheba. Well, how did all that start? Remember, he took another man's wife and had the husband killed. Well, how did that all start? Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So what did he do? He saw, he took, he coveted, he, he coveted another man's wife, and he took and had Uriah the Hittite, her husband, killed. So how did the devil tempt Jesus in this way? Look at verses 5 to 7. And he led him up, and look what it says, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory. Do you hear that appeal to, to this, this vain glory, this, this, uh, this desire for more stuff? For it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me, Worship before me, it shall be yours. 
So he showed him the kingdoms of the world and promised him those domains and all their glory. Lust of the eyes. He, he was, there's that attempt there to stir up some covetousness within him. Now, listen, Jesus has always been going to inherit the kingdoms of the world. Jesus has always been slated to inherit the kingdoms of the world. Here's a couple of verses. Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. The Father, speaking to the Son, said, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Isaiah 2, 2. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Revelation eleven fifteen. This is yet to happen. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Jesus has always been the one to inherit the nations. So what's the devil trying to do? You can have have the crown without the cross. You just take this shortcut. You just bow down and worship me. You don't have to go through all that taking the sin of the, of, of, of the world upon you. You don't have to deal with all the, all the floggings and all, the, all the, uh, the people that are treating you like, like dirt. They don't, you, don't, you don't be spit on. You won't be disrespected. You don't have to deal with any of that. You just, you just come to me and I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll, I'll give all this to you. And so watch Jesus' response. He quoted scripture. Again, Deuteronomy. Chapter 6 this time, verse 13. What does he say? He says, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Now in that passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy 6.13, again, Moses is talking to the people. They're going to be going into the promised land. He says, You're going to be going to a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a rich land. There are vineyards. There are cities. There are going to be houses and, and all these things. But there's also going to be a lot of idolatry. There's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of sin, religiously speaking, a lot of people that worship false gods. And Moses said, "Don't worship anyone. Don't worship anything except the one true God. You shall worship and serve Him only." And that's a that's a, a principle that's laid out all through Scripture, isn't it? Have no other gods before me. Flee idolatry, so on and so forth. There's a lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes, and the last area of temptation we see is, a, is the boastful pride of life. The boastful pride of life. The idea here is of pride or arrogance. And this, this idea of boastful, it, it has the idea of, of arrogant presumption. Arrogant presumption. So if you look at the last temptation that he hit him with, it's a bit different. Because he tries to get Jesus to leap from the pinnacle of the temple. Now, we don't know exactly where this would have been on the Temple Mount. Um, some people think maybe it's the southeastern corner, because that's the part that overlooks the Kidron Valley, which is very, very deep. And so that would have been like a 100-foot drop. And so understand what he's saying. He's saying, you just take a leap of faith. The angels will catch you. It says so in the Bible. You want to quote, quote scripture? Well, here's some scripture for you. And he quotes some Psalms, Psalm 90 and Psalm 91. Here's the thing. He quotes them accurately. The, the issue is not in, the, in, in the, the accuracy of his quotation. The issue is the way he applies it. He says, you know what, Jesus, you're wanting to talk about Scripture so much. Well, here's some Scripture for you. 
You just, you just cast yourself down. The angels will bear you up. They'll keep you from striking your foot on a rock. It'd be like, listen, that is presumption. That's like standing on the train track and believing that God's going to make it stop before it hits you. Might it happen? Maybe. Most likely you're going to be flat as a pancake, right? Why? Because that is presumption. And to say to somebody, you just jump off this 100-foot cliff and expect the angels to catch you at the bottom, that's presumption. He's trying to get Jesus to murder himself. That is presuming on God. And so what is Jesus' response to the devil's quotation of Scripture? He quotes Scripture. Guess what book he quotes out of? Deuteronomy. Again, third time, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16 this time. Verse 12, he says, And Jesus answered said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Listen, we have no right to presume any certain action on the part of God. But what about those verses out of Psalms? Because that's in the Bible. Listen, those Psalms are about God caring for His people in times of struggle and difficulty. They have nothing to do with foolishly presuming that God's going to take care of you and protect you and catch you at the bottom if you dumbly jump off a cliff. That's not what it's about. That's, it's about God's care for His people during times of adversity. It's not about presumption. That is the boastful pride of life. So now if you look at verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation... He left him until an opportune time. As one writer put it, Christ's defeat of the devil in the wilderness was decisive but not final. He goes away, but only for a time. So there's the temptations. We have the categories all this fits into. Again, there's some overlap between them, but those are the three main areas. What are some of the enemy's tactics we see? First, we see that sometimes the devil uses prolonged temptations. He didn't just hit him with one thing, did he? He hit him with three, but if you look back at verses 1 and 2, and I didn't really, I, I didn't draw this out, but if you look at verses 1 and 2, it says that he was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And Mark plainly says that for 40 days he was being tempted. Now we think that we're spiritually oppressed when we're tempted for 15 minutes. We think that we're going through hard times if we go through it for a couple of hours. The devil's just pounding on us. But Jesus was tempted for over a month straight, barrage after barrage after barrage of temptation. And we don't get them all recorded, but these three are kind of the culmination of those temptations. And again, we think that we're in a, a bad way when we go through just a little time. But here's Jesus for over a month of being tempted out in the wilderness by himself, there's nobody there to encourage him. There's nobody there that he can talk to. Nobody there to, to say, hey man, I need some prayer in this area. He was out there by himself. It was prolonged temptation. Sometimes the devil will do that to us. He'll just try and wear us down. He's like a, a dog on a bone. You ever see a, you give a dog a bone? You try to take that bone out of its mouth, what does it do? Boy, it, it just fights and it, it, go, it just keeps going after. Sometimes the devil's like that with us. But even though it's prolonged, the second thing I want you to see is that it's temporary. The devil left Jesus. It's for a time. He came back. But it was a temporary temptation. 
whatever temptation we're going through, it will not go on forever. Third, again, the devil tempts us in three areas. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. The temptations are going to look different for each of us. Never once has the devil tempted me to turn a stone into bread. I can't do it. I know I can't do it. He knows I can't do it. That's not a temptation for me. But we all have those, those areas that are kind of peculiar to us that he will tempt us in those, those categories. We see it all throughout Scripture. You think about the Garden of Eden. So here, again, and I, I mentioned this a, a few weeks ago, and, and last week I think it was, we looked at the genealogy of Jesus. Trace it all the way back to Adam, the Son of God. Here we have the Son of God in the Garden of Eden with Adam. Here we have the Son of God, Jesus, in the wilderness, the last Adam. In the Garden of Eden, he was tempted and he failed. Jesus, in the wilderness, succeeded. So, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Now, listen, listen for these three categories. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, what's that? Lust of the flesh. It's fulfilling, wanting to fulfill that physical desire. When it was good for food, fulfilling, uh, again, fulfilling the appetites in an inappropriate way, and that it was, a, that it was delightful to the eyes. Lust of the eyes, tempt us through the things that we see. And that it was desirable to make one wise. There's the boastful pride of life, arrogantly thinking that she needed more knowledge. She deserved more knowledge than what God had revealed. You remember it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When she saw those things, she took from the fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Three categories. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Fourth, the proper response to temptation is the Word of God. The proper response to temptation is the Word of God. Jesus quoted Scripture. He didn't rely on miraculous power. He didn't rely on His authority as God in the flesh. He used the same tool that we have at our, at our disposal, and that's the Bible. Now, I want you to think about this. The words that Jesus quoted, different language, but the words that Jesus quoted are the same words you have in your Bible. This is the first part of this, what we call the Old Testament. That was what Jesus had. This, and if that's good enough for Jesus, guess what? It's, it'll be good enough for us. He had the same, same Bible at his disposal we have, only we have more. We have the New Testament too. We have all this extra stuff, all this additional revelation that wasn't present during that first century. He knew it. He knew how to apply it, and he used it. What did Paul say in Ephesians 6? He talks about the, the, the armor of God. Do you remember all that? He, all the stuff that he talks about, the helmet, and the, uh, the, the breastplate of, of righteousness, all those things, all those are defensive except for one thing. you remember what it is? The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. Jesus used, he wielded the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and faith in that Word is a shield, a shield of faith. So listen, don't try to fight the devil in your own power because you will lose. You will lose. You have an enemy inside the gates that wants to do the sin. And sometimes just the idea of the sin will come into our minds. We don't even have that much of a desire, but our flesh says, oh yeah, let's do that. Right? I mean, oh yeah, say that. You can, that's a zinger. Get them with that. 
We can't do it on our own. We need the Spirit's help. We need the, the, the empowering of the Spirit, and we need the Word of God. And I want to encourage you because we're all tempted to sin. Every one of us. And listen, all of us do sin. You do it, and I do it. There's nobody in this place that's immune from it. The only person that hasn't sinned is Jesus. And the Bible says that there's forgiveness when we do sin. In 1 John, John says, I write these things that you might not sin. And if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And just before that, he says that if we will confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, there is forgiveness. You say, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. That's right. But God does. Jesus knew when he went to the cross, and he paid for that. And he offers salvation for that person who will turn from their sin, who will confess their sin, and ask for forgiveness. That's true of the Christian. And listen, if you are a non-believer, if you are not a follower of Christ, there's forgiveness for you too. Forgiveness is found, it, it's, the, the ground is leveled at the foot of the cross. It's not one way for, for the preacher and another way for everybody else. It's not one way for this person, somebody, something else for somebody else. It's all leveled at the foot of the cross. The Bible says that if, if, if we will confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We will be forgiven. And if you've never done that, do that today. Why don't you stand as musicians come? And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And with nobody looking around, I just want to encourage you to to pray you know what you know what's in your heart you know those things you've been thinking about those things you've been saying the things you've been looking at the attitudes that you've had the way you've treated those around you you, you know all that <clears throat> you might be here and, and you say and I have really messed things up. I have sinned in this area. I have failed. There is forgiveness. It's not through doing certain acts. It's not through giving a certain amount. It's not through all these extra things. Forgiveness is found only in Jesus because of what he did on the cross. Say, what I've done is too bad. I talked about David before. Even after all that, the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. Not because of what he did, but because he recognized and repented of what he had done. Peter, a follower of Jesus, had walked with him, had seen him in the flesh for three years. When Jesus needed him most, said, I don't even know him. He denied Christ 
Later he went out and wept bitter tears. God forgave him, reinstated him, and he is one of the mightiest preachers of the early church. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we serve a not only a risen Savior, but a sinless Savior. We serve a, a Savior who in all things was tempted as we are and yet without sin. He knows what it's like to go through, through these pressures, through these trials, of being put to the test. And not, not just for a little while, but he endured it to the end without faltering even once. God, we thank you for that. We thank you that we have the same spirit within us as believers as he had in the wilderness. We thank you that we have the same word today that he had 2,000 years ago. And that was sufficient then, it's just as sufficient now. And God, I pray that you'd help each of us whenever we go through those times of temptation to, uh, to rely on you, to rely on the Spirit, to rely on your Word, and to correctly wield that, that sword of the Spirit. God, we thank you for forgiveness when we do not deserve it, because none of us do. Lord, I pray for that person now who may, who may desperately be crying out to you for forgiveness. I ask that you would bring that to them, let them experience that, that freedom, and to move ahead in their walk with you. God, for the person maybe who's never accepted Christ as their Savior, they think they're, they're too much of a sinner, they've gone too far, they've, they're, they're too bad. Lord, I pray that you would let them realize that Christ knew all about it when he went to the cross. And that he still died on the cross for unworthy people. And if, any who, if there be any who call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And, and help that person that may be struggling now to do that. God, we thank you for your love and your mercy and your forgiveness. In Jesus' name. Amen.